0: Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis
1: and this is Thursday, December 13th, 2018. Tonight, we continue talking about what to look for and where the banks cannot hide. Tonight, we talk about the reality of the fake securitization scheme and what it means to homeowners who are presenting a defense narrative in opposition to foreclosures. What I'm saying here and on my blog, livinglies.wordpress.com, is factually correct and founded on basic black-letter law. I've confirmed it in a variety of different ways with, uh, uh, let's just say, very knowledgeable sources. But just because I say it doesn't mean the judges will follow it even if they're required to do so by law. Judges have their own mind. And if the judge sees a result coming that he or she doesn't like, then they start ruling on other things that makes their view inevitable as the outcome. So here's the story and the analysis. And this is, frankly, the story of how I have won many cases, uh, both directly as lead counsel and indirectly as second counsel or as consultant uh, or, or expert witness on the securitization of debt. It all starts with a process that has been done for centuries in the financial markets called selling forward, which is a lot like selling short. Let me emphasize that what I'm talking about here occurred only in the very largest investment banks or in their chain, I should say. They permitted it. um, Initiated by a Goldman Sachs plan that would and did bleed the world dry of almost all money. Smaller investment banks, even if they were very large and prestigious, may not have engaged in this behavior very much. And so they were at risk. That's why Lehman and Bear Stearns went down. Those of you who are or were investors may know that when you sell short on a stock or other asset, you're selling what you don't have. This is allowed on Wall Street. It's part of trading. It's not illegal. Selling forward also means that you're selling some asset but it's not a common stock or bond recognized as a regulated utility and it does the same thing. You're selling what you don't have. This too is perfectly legal. But when you sell short, you must pay a fee to an actual owner of the stock or bond or whatever and borrow the shares from the owner to deliver to the party to whom you sold the shares before the usual five-day settlement date. In selling forward, you don't need to do that because under under the rules of fake securitization, you never need to deliver the actual assets you sold. Imagine that you could sell a car and then not deliver it but still take the money. Basically, what Goldman Sachs and other companies did, in my opinion. That is what opened the door to moral hazard, and knowing it opens the door to a successful challenge of, of a foreclosure by, by what I am calling now a ghost. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. I know this is not NPR, but we spend hours and hours, and people who supply us with the information spend hours and hours every week to produce this show and what we publish on the blog, the forms, the cases, and so forth. If if our work has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows, which occurs without payment from anyone, if that has value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So why does it matter? What difference does it make if the party named as the claimant in a foreclosure action doesn't exist? Who cares if the named claimant doesn't own the debt and has no right to enforce the mortgage? You got the loan, didn't you? You stopped paying on it, didn't you? So why are you, opposed, why are you opposing this foreclosure? You know you, you're going to lose, right? And the judge says, you know, I'm, you understand, I'm not going to give you a free house. Be a man, be a woman, be an adult, and take the responsibility for your just punishment. Those are just a sampling of questions and comments that homeowners and foreclosure defense lawyers are tired of hearing. The answers seem like technicalities blowing in the wind. And that's where we go wrong right away. They're not technicalities, and they're not blowing in the wind. So here is a common, simple common sense answer, just for our own purposes here, so you don't feel guilty about trying to get out of what you think is a rightful debt. First of all, it isn't rightful, not anymore. It's been changed and torn apart such that the Principle, the interest, everything due from the borrower has been earned and sold multiple times contemporaneously with the origination of the loan. Pornographic amounts of money were made as soon as the borrower put ink on the closing papers. But in many cases, it was as soon as the borrower put ink or in some way acknowledged the application for the loan that's why many applicants for a loan were sued in foreclosure before black knight basically as the uh the hub of the wheel got their act together and made sure that they didn't have multiple foreclosures on the same home and they didn't have foreclosures on people who never took out a loan or had already paid it off. The reason why there is no foreclosure action in which a claimant says, I loaned the money, I have the note, I have the mortgage, is that there is no such person or party except in a very, very, very small percentage of cases like a local community bank lending to a local person then you're back to where we were in the 1980s and early 90s where most loans were legitimate and they were not torn apart as described in the Uniform Commercial Code where the intention to separate the debt from the note, the note from the mortgage uh, is is obvious which it is in the case of false securitization real securitization would be very simple you'd end up signing a note payable to a an actual existing trust that was governed by a trustee that's not what's happening and if it was acquired by the trust, you'd still end up with the trust actually paying for the, uh, the loan just as they had funded an origination of the loan uh, and governed by a trustee which is actually uh, managing the assets actively of, of the trust. None of this stuff happens. The reason why there is no foreclosure action in which the claimant says I loan the money is that there is no claimant that can say that they advanced money. That's very important in Article Three Judicial Standing. If there is no party involved who has suffered a financial loss then there is no case. There is no standing. There is no jurisdiction. That doesn't mean there isn't a claim. The investors probably have some sort of equitable claim on the debt, the note, the mortgage. I don't know what. But until they get a court order declaring their rights, there is nobody legally who can assert any claim to collect, much less enforce uh, a loan in which they are merely what I call a TPS, a third-party stranger. So the answer is that virtually every foreclosure, the common-sense answer to the common-sense questions that are asked by judges and practically everybody else, is that virtually every foreclosure is the culmination and ratification of a massive fraud perpetrated around the world against investors in which homeowners were collateral damage. Every time a homeowner steps away and lets them foreclose, they are assuring that the banks can keep the money they stole from investors every foreclosure sale represents a ratification of windfall profits far in excess of the principal amount of the, of the mortgage loan, mostly the result of investor gullibility and false pretenses about the very nature of the investment and who will get the money when the property, foreclosed property is liquidated. That's an area most people don't look at. That's right. You think that the party named by lawyers as the one initiating the foreclosure is going to get the house and the proceeds if the foreclosure sale happens, right? Wrong. Very few people look at who gets the check, and even fewer look at who cashes the check. Spoiler alert, it isn't the trustee. It isn't the trust. It isn't the investor's. None of them will ever see that money. So why should these third-party interlopers, these strangers to your loan, be allowed to foreclose in the name of people who are not interested in, nor likely to gain any benefit from the forced sale of your home? In fact, they suffer a detriment in that the value of all homes in that area go down, and if they're if if the investor's money is in any of those homes, the value of their collateral is correspondingly reduced, to the great happiness of the banks who have bet that the collateral, uh, the value of the collateral will be reduced. So they made money not only doing this, but by betting on the failure of many loans. The whole thing is a lie, and the people know it even if they don't understand the specifics. That is why there is so much unrest in the world and why so few people trust the rule of law and our democratic institutions. The leaders are completely out of step with the fact that people of the world got screwed by the banks that the banks made pornographic amounts of money and that everybody else got screwed. Investors, government, taxpayers, borrowers, and homeowners. And yet these leaders think they still have to back the banks. They're wrong. The only way to to bring our economy right side up and not have it artificially lifted is by returning wealth to the middle class and providing opportunities for wealth to the lower class. That's the answer. And if the true owners of your debt knew that they were parties with rights to assert over your debt, then workouts, modifications, and settlements would have skyrocketed. Investors don't need foreclosures, they need money they're not getting it through foreclosures because they're not getting the proceeds. Investors didn't want housing prices to drop through the floor, but the banks did because they were betting on it. So don't tell me about what is moral if you are backing the banks. The moral thing to do is to claw back all that money that the banks have stashed in every conceivable investment all over the world, courtesy the money they stole or obtained by false pretenses from investors which would not have been possible if they hadn't convinced borrowers to take loans that were not founded on economic reality or affordability. Affordability is a duty incidentally that federal law expressly states is the duty of the lender and not of the borrower. Let me repeat that. The law is that the duty to determine affordability and the viability of the loan is on the lender because of the complexity of the transaction. That's in the Truth in Lending Act. There's no question that it says that. It is not the duty of the borrower to figure out things where they don't even have access to the information necessary to do that so when a bank for example gave a loan with a teaser payment that resets to a payment level higher than the entire household income that risk was a risk that was underwritten by the bank, contrary to law, and they should be the ones paying the excess because the loan was sold at the teaser rate, which was a rate that the borrower could afford, but the reset was something that the borrower would never be able to afford. So the whole representation that the loan would go 30 years was a lie. Whenever the reset was going to happen, that's when the loan would end and it would end up in in foreclosure. Arguing what I've stated to you here and on my blog will not get you anywhere in court. So let's be clear about that. In fact, If you make this type of argument in court, you might even lose ground and lose credibility to a judge who views you or your lawyer as a conspiracy theorist. So don't do that, but know it. Remember that anything you affirmatively allege or assert, you must then prove by competent, and substantial evidence, which is evidence that you don't have and you probably never will have unless you're given a blank check in discovery. And even then, you may not get it. You probably won't. Any admission there would be an admission that they should go to jail. Any reference to newspaper articles or blogs or radio shows especially if their opinion pieces will dig your hole only deeper. That's not evidence. It's not competent evidence. Unless the court specifically qualifies a specific person as an expert, hears their opinion, and then gives weight to that opinion. They are not required to give any weight to the opinion. So what then? If you understand the basics outlined so far and apply normal logic, then just knowing what really happened in the money chain can lead to victory in a court that's relying on the paper trail. Money trail and the paper trail. The money trail is what really happened. The paper trail is what is defective. So, And it often does happen that homeowners win. You don't hear about it because every time a homeowner wins, they're basically paid to keep quiet under a settlement uh, payment to keep quiet, um, covered by a seal of confidentiality in which they lose their home if they open their mouths about it. So this knowledge will lead you to raise timely objections to what is introduced as potential evidence and to ask questions and, listen to this, follow-up questions on cross-examinations. It's not you who should be afraid of where the answers will lead. It's the bank's. Because ultimately the robo-witnesses are going to have to concede they don't know the answer to your questions and they don't know anyone who does. That's because they've been isolated and given a script. Applying this knowledge to your objections, questions, and legal arguments will gradually nudge any fair-minded judge to conclude that maybe there is something wrong here. Maybe there is something wrong with this case because we all know that no judge is going to issue an order that vacates millions of foreclosures unless it's the Supreme Court of the United States in reviewing new cases on Teal of Rescission, 15 U.S.C. Section 1635. Don't get too big in your dreams. Confine yourself to the facts in your case. If you're suing for damages arising out of these wrongful foreclosures and you want to allege that this was part of a pattern of wrongful malicious conduct, remember that you have to prove that. And if your case is only about fraud, then you will need to prove it by clear and convincing evidence, which is virtually beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why I always remind people to allege negligence uh, negligent misrepresentation, or gross negligence, or negligent supervision, uh, as a fallback on their fraud and RICO claims. One intentional tort, though, that seems to be getting a little bit of traction is the interference by the TPS, the third-party stranger uh, interference between the borrower and the actual credi- creditor, with whom they are supposed to they are supposed to have access under law for workouts, modifications and payoffs. For regular ble- readers of this uh, of the blog, you know that I have continually distinguished between the money trail and the paper trail. This is the difference between truth and fiction respectively. We know that there is no evidence that could support the assertion or even the implication that the originator loaned a, pe- a penny if it was a thinly capitalized broker or, quote, originator, in other words, a company operating for fee rather than to earn a profit by way of the interest. The loan, uh, if the loan occurred at the peak of the mortgage meltdown between 2004 and 2008, it's most likely uh, true that the so-called originator, even if it was a big bank, Uh, was not using its own money or credit or ability to create it, Uh, but instead uh, was using the money of uh, third-party investors. We therefore know that anyone who claimed to be a successor to the originator did not purchase a loan. That's why they can't produce proof of payment. Why pay and who you're going to pay it to if the party you're getting the assignment from and the endorsement from doesn't own the loan in the first place and never did. Hence, they could be presumed to to own the debt and without ownership of the debt, they, wait a minute, they, they could not be presumed to own the debt. And without ownership of the debt, there can be no enforcement of the mortgage under existing law Although there could conceivably be a path to enforcing the note for a personal judgment. So, tactically, this suggests that you vigorously pursue a discovery strategy and trial strategy that shows that the lawyers for whoever was named as having initiated the foreclosure did so knowing that the claim, the named claimant or entity, either did not exist at all, which is very often the case, or did not own the debt. This is easier than you think. By drilling down to the finer points of your defense narrative, you can accomplish a lot. But it takes thought and preparation of discovery, preparation of trial objections, and preparation of cross-examination. And also remember that you're fighting a battle that can be and often is won against the banks. You hear in the news about all the numbers of foreclosures that went through, and the statistics are staggering. What you don't hear is the percentage of people who did hotly contest the foreclosures That's when you start hearing about foreclosures that are taking 8 to 10 years and they're still not finished because the claimant doesn't exist. The claimant doesn't own the debt. The claimant has no interest in the proceeds of a foreclosure sale. And sometimes this can be worked to your advantage even after the sale if you keep tracking it, sometimes you can get, and I have had people who did get, the information that shows that a check upon liquidation was sent to the so-called the trustee of the trust, but it wasn't cashed. And then it was sent to a servicer, and it wasn't cashed. And then finally it was sent to the underwriter, of the uh, uh, certificates that were sold to investors, the underwriter cashed the loan. So remember that you're fighting for your house, you're fighting to keep your life in order, but you're also fighting against the largest fraud in human history. Good night. I'll be back with you in January. Charles Marshall and will be with you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily. At the Living Lies blog, we provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.